Adventure Anything. Jeanette Barnes brings you insights from people behind the news and people like you. Now, Venture Anything. Hello, we're talking today with Joshua Amaral, who is a member of the New Bedford School Committee. Um, He works at PACE here in the city, and he was also the school committee liaison to the screening committee that worked on screening the superintendent candidates in New Bedford. Um, So here we are coming up very soon um, next week on the public interviews with the candidates. How's the search going, Josh? It's going. We're uh, we're off and running, and uh, you know I I feel like it just started, and yet we're uh, almost at the finish line. So a couple weeks from now, if all goes well, we will have a a new superintendent to start uh, on July 1st. Now tell us about your role with the screening committee and what you had to do. Sure. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for having me on today. Oh, uh, sure. Welcome. I'm honored to be one of the first guests here. Um, I've always wanted to be on a podcast, so it's kind of cool to be here. Um, but so anyway, being on the uh, being on the screening committee is an interesting experience. Uh, the last time New Bedford hired a superintendent, I wasn't on the school committee yet, but I was following local education pretty closely. I don't know if I knew that I wanted to run for school committee yet. I was just kind of doing some research, and uh, I had went to some of the public interviews and tried to follow that process a little bit and, you know, kind of vet the candidates for myself. Of course, I I knew, you know, like a fraction of the stuff that I know about the school department now, Uh, but I was excited to be on the the screening committee and and go through uh, each phase of it. So from, you know, working on the job description to um, putting the posting out to screening through the initial, I think we got 23 applications uh, that made it through uh, the screening committee, I mean, the the search firm that we hired. So the search firm weeds out some of them if they're just, you know, totally not qualified for the job. But uh, if they're on the bubble or they're certainly qualified for the job, they pass them on to the screening committee. Uh, we had whittled them down uh, basically electronically, just trying to decide uh, who would be able to move on to the next uh, the next stage where we would interview them at the screening committee. We did those preliminary interviews. Uh, we must have did about 10 of those uh, over the course of a week. And uh, then we settled on our four finalists, which was uh, really an interesting process just to uh, hear different perspectives of folks in the room. We had a pretty wide variety of folks from the community that were represented on that uh, screening committee with me. And uh, I'll tell you, it is interesting to watch someone interview, ask uh, them questions, uh, think about them in the context of some of the other candidates that you heard from, and then kind of compare your notes with uh, with someone else on a screening committee and to learn that they see something totally different than you saw. You know, you're both mm-hmm. sitting there watching the same thing, um, but you come up with uh, some different takeaways from that. So uh, I think largely there was consensus in the room on, uh, on the finalists, but uh, it was an interesting process just to see where everybody's coming from. And this week, some of the members are actually going out to the superintendent's um, current districts and and visiting there, right? Yeah. So uh, as soon as I leave here today, uh, I'll be on my way to Portsmouth, Rhode Island to... Uh, meet with some folks in uh, in Anna Riley's district. So she's one of our finalists here. Uh, prior to being the superintendent in Portsmouth, she was the superintendent in Dartmouth for uh, three or four years. And uh, we've got kind of an itinerary once we get to Portsmouth. I'm uh, going to head up there with Jack Livermento today. And uh, we're going to meet with teachers. We're going to meet with union representatives. Uh, we're going to meet with uh, some of the principals. I think one of the guests to meet with is uh, the police chief there. So sort of get a, a wide array um, I've talked to school committee members throughout the state, and there's you know some debate about the effectiveness of the site visit. Right, um, largely they're put together by the by the superintendent candidate themselves, or at least they certainly have a hand in uh, orchestrating this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, so you would expect that you're going to get 
you know, sort of an optimistic picture of, of what's going on in the district. Um, but it's an opportunity to reach out to other folks that are in the town and try to ask some maybe pointed questions to get at uh, what it's like to have this person as your superintendent. Uh, I thought that uh, Colleen DeWicke, who's on the school committee, asked an interesting question the other night about how um, committee members might debrief one another, right? Because you might only visit one or two, and then, you know, you have an in-depth knowledge from that visit, but you haven't visited the others. So how is that going to – is the the committee going to have a public session where you talk about those things? So it's – I got to be honest, it's really not the cleanest process uh, in the context of the state's open meeting law. So I certainly, you know, agree with uh, transparency and and having as much out in public as possible. Certainly, you have to hold your public officials accountable um, and they have to meet in public and deliberate in public. That's the spirit of the whole thing. Um, At the same time, when it comes to sort of confidential personnel hiring type stuff, it's, it's a little different. It's a little tricky to um, to navigate all that and to do it properly. So um, it looks like the best way to handle it, the way other school committees have handled it, is to uh, sort of wait until the last stages. So after the site visits, um, next week the people will be coming to the district here. They'll be going through the district for the day and sort of a tour of our, our district, and then they'll interview at night. Um, and then sort of at the end of the week, or I guess the next Monday, if the schedule holds up, uh, we would deliberate about everything that we saw. So like the total package on that on that candidate. How much of the site visits come up, I don't know. Uh, and that's where this sort of becomes kind of an imperfect system. Uh, me and Jack go to Portsmouth today. Uh, our observations on Anna Riley, uh, we don't really have an opportunity to, to express with the committee members in, in public session until the end. So, mm. um, And we're not allowed to discuss it really in, in private session, right? So it's, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's something that maybe wasn't properly accounted for in the open meeting law, but um, I think, you know, ideally, everybody would be able to come back with sort of a report on what they saw in those districts. Then again, like I said about the screening committee, uh, you have kind of a, a difference of opinion even watching the same exact thing. So um, some committee members might think other uh, other ways about the things that I see and like or dislike. Uh, they might disagree with me. So it's an imperfect system, but you try to paint as accurate a picture of the candidate as you can. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you have this committed to memory, but do you know who's going to the other um, ca- the other finalists? I want to say that uh, Chris Cotter and Colleen DeWicke are going to Randolph, where Thomas Anderson is from. Um, I'm also going to New Bedford Vogue tomorrow with, I think, John Oliveira uh, to check out Heather Larkin and meet with some of the folks there, um, which I guess would leave... I guess you could do process of elimination to to find out who's going to uh, Maynard Mass to visit uh, Dr. Girardi, um, but I think they're all uh, they're all going to get a, a thorough look from from some school committee members, which is exciting. Okay, and um, next week the interviews. I actually put in a request to the district today to find out who's being interviewed each night. Do you know, do you have that yet? Or? I don't. No, I okay. don't. Yeah. So, um, I guess I'm curious to know the order myself. Um, I've kind of had some life experiences where you're wondering if it's best to interview first or last or in the middle or toward the end or you know what what kind of goes into that and uh i've read some research that said that it's it's basically best to go first or last uh in the middle uh, you have to try you know really hard to make yourself memorable um Mm. and that's not to make a statement about about our order or any of the candidates in particular but um it's sort of a fascinating subject you know does it even matter probably not but um, I think if someone leaves us with something memorable no matter uh, where they are in the public interview process uh, it'll be important and really the public interviews 
are as much for the school committee members as they are the, the general public to hear from these folks and sort of vet them for themselves. Um, you, you wonder what questions are best to ask. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's almost like a debate where I want to ask you questions where you have to, you have to really give, uh, take a position on something as opposed to, you know, tell me about yourself, tell me about your family, you know, um, in a context where we might be only able to ask seven or eight questions. I'd like to hear the, the questions where the superintendent candidates have to take a stance on something that's important to me or, or other committee members or our community as a whole. Did you, are you ready to share with us maybe a key question that uh, you would think they really should answer? Well, yeah. So we, uh, each committee member had uh, given some suggestions to the search firm. So I, I proposed two or three questions to them. One that's uh, very important to me and, and something that I've been reading about a little bit uh, is sort of how a modern superintendent takes a stance on um, the growth of, of standardized testing in schools. So uh, I don't think you could find too many people who would argue that it's not a necessary component of education. Um, at the same time, I don't think you'd find too many people who would disagree with the fact that it's probably gone a little too far, a little overboard. Uh, particularly in urban districts like ours that have uh, all kinds of state accountability. Um, the state's sort of uh, accountability practice of the last few years has been to really push testing as, a, as an important instrument. Uh, so the question that I have uh, that I'd really like to hear a well-articulated answer to is how would you, um, how would you approach that with a, with a balance, right? So at the core of standardized testing, um, one of the one of the goals of that whole practice is to to level the playing field for everybody to hold everybody to the same standard that's important we agree with that we can't go back to the days where um, certain districts not New Bedford but certain districts would encourage special education students to stay home on the test day uh, because if they didn't take it, it didn't matter it didn't count right uh, so it's it, it's got some value um, and data is obviously something to look at uh, but it's also not the end-all be-all so how does a superintendent uh, plan to to weigh those those priorities because it's something that I repeatedly hear from people in the community that we we do too much testing. Well, that sounds like a tough thing for a superintendent to get involved in, in the sense that unless they're going to become a, sort of a, a state activist, statewide activist on this issue, what can they do? I mean, they have to follow the you know the, the rules or the procedures set out by the state, right? So now with uh, MCAS, uh, it's, we've switched back and forth MCAS and Park, and now we're on MCAS 2.0. Um, you're mandated to do that that annual state testing in the, in the subjects that you're you're mandated, right? Um, districts have varied widely, and actually the states kind of complained about this, that the problem isn't with them, it's with districts themselves, because uh, districts do all measures of test preparation. Um, in New Bedford, we, we have a system called the STAR assessment, uh, which is an acronym for something, but essentially it's a, it's a test that you can uh, have your students take throughout the year, and it correlates with performance on the MCAS. So um, different districts have different uh, frequencies that they, they do those tests. Uh, in New Bedford, from what I hear, we do a lot of that. Uh, in other districts, they might do less, just enough to kind of gauge their performance on, say, a quarterly basis. Um, other districts might do it twice a year. Other districts might not do it at all. They just wait until uh, the springtime. Students take the MCAS and uh, move on. So um, I think it does, it does matter somewhat the philosophy on how you approach that. Um, personally, I think probably the most, uh, the most effective way to approach it is to teach the things that, that matter. Um, try to come up with district-led measures of the, the things that make a school a quality school. Uh, so, you know, even beyond academic achievement and test scores, um, 
things that matter are like students' health outcomes and their social uh, social emotional learning uh, and things like that. And we don't have a great way of measuring those things, but uh, I think they're, most people would agree that they're that those are just as important, if not more so. Okay. So some um, some of the testing that's done in New Bedford is not required, in other words, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the okay. state, you know, hearing complaints from from districts and people like me uh, would be the first to tell you, you know, we make you do this once a year. Uh, all the other stuff that you do is on you. So districts, particularly urban districts, have felt sort of compelled to do more and more of this um, benchmarking, of this checking in at the middle of the year to see where students are so that they can sort of anticipate where they're going to be on the actual MCAS results and, you know, apply some interventions. So if a student is really struggling behind in math or English uh, and that shows on some of those assessments, uh, they can ideally pull them out and do some kind of different uh, instruction with them or give them more one-on-one time, which I'm not saying is uh, not valuable, but you do have to consider the scope and the frequency of that. Okay. Um, one thing that's been a discussion in some of the um, debates recently, uh, especially with the actual political debates for the school committee race, um, was teacher retention and teacher morale. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, can you have a superintendent who's really well-liked, um, who's, and, and can that person, I'm sorry, can that person... Uh, still turn around, if you want to use that word that the state uses, can this can that person still make big improvements in a, a district that needs to improve if they're, if they're really well-liked and they're not sort of that tough guy personality? Yeah, it was a, it's a great question. And uh, I think my second question that I recommended for the interviews is something along those lines, right? How do you balance um, your sort of likability, right, with your ability to make hard decisions, which come up all the time in a district like ours. Um, so you need somebody that's capable of making a decision, um, somebody that's ideally able to sort of anticipate um, the different reactions among the stakeholders when they make those decisions, but ultimately they're going to make the decision that they think is right, regardless of, of what that may be. Um, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing, but I would say that there are superintendents in, in urban districts throughout the state that have been able to sort of toe that line. Um, now, this is a, a credit to Dr. Durkin, I guess. Um, a lot of the reforms that she she undertook here uh, in her time in New Bedford um, were not popular, but you could make a case needed to be done, right? I mean, that's that's what uh, that's what she would probably say uh, that those things need to needed to be undertaken, and uh, popularity wasn't wasn't a, a factor. Um, the mayor has repeatedly said that you know we didn't try to hire Mary Poppins, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's the the quote, and. Um, I think based on where New Bedford was four or five years ago, that, that's probably not the worst, uh, the worst approach to take. But I think based on some of the advances that we've made in those in the last few years, um, it's time to you know have someone that is maybe spending a little bit more time on building consensus and, and trying to move everyone forward. Uh, I think we've experienced some diminishing returns on on a system that uh, is a little too top down for my liking. Um, and I think, you know, if you can engage teachers and you can engage the community in general um, with somebody that comes in with sort of a fresh start, uh, I think there's potential for that. Uh, other districts across the state are experiencing some of the same problems with teacher retention. Uh, some of that goes beyond just the, the sort of local mo- morale in New Bedford, but um, but just some of the, the the other difficulties an urban school district has. So I think there's a lot of people in New Bedford, our best teachers probably, 
are teachers who are dedicated to New Bedford. They love the city. Most of them are from here, um, or they're from communities similar to New Bedford, and they undertake this work, and, and this is what they love, and they would never do anything else. There's some other other folks uh, across the state, and I've met with some other urban school community members just the other day on this, um, that would say, yeah, I can go work in New Bedford, Fall River, Brockton, um, but I could also go work in Dartmouth, Fairhaven, Somerset, Seekonk, where the students have uh, less challenges, or it's a less challenging school population. Uh, the school districts are more well-resourced, right? They've got more supplies, more supports, more um, arts and, and other things that, that go into a well-rounded education, um, and they'll deal with a lot less stress. Um, we're also competing with school districts up in that kind of Boston market where a lot of the kids just graduating out of, out of college, uh, they want to go be in urban centers like that uh, and teach in, say, Somerville or Cambridge or Boston itself. Um, so it leaves you with sort of a narrow field to, to choose from here in New Bedford. And that's really part of the reason that we need to do a better job of keeping our best people here in the city because it's hard to come by, right? Um, I, I try to use sort of a grade level analogy, and it's it's an oversimplification. But uh, if you've got a teacher in a classroom that's that's a B plus teacher, right? Uh, we should be trying to keep that person and provide them with the support so they can become an A, a plus teacher. Uh, we shouldn't have the approach that because they're not already an A plus teacher, that we might be better off hiring somebody else for that position and hoping that they're better than a B plus, right? Um, and that's that's sort of the approach that a lot of urban districts have have taken. Um, we have to we have to make do with the people that that want to work here, and we have to help them to become the best teachers that they that they possibly can. And we're lucky to have a ton of them, um, but we need to validate the work that they're doing and do a better job of keeping them working for us because our kids need the best teachers that they can get in front of them. Is there anything else you can say about what you would like to see um, the new superintendent do? It's important to me uh, that a new superintendent doesn't come in and um, try to hit the reset button on everything going on in the district, right? So I think we've uh, we've come a long way in four or five years. Um, we've got a lot of really professional systems in place now. Um, the, the trains run on time, uh, if that makes any sense. There's uh, an architecture and infrastructure that gets the message from the central office down to the school level that brings schools together. Um, we could do a better job, I think, building relationships with the community, building relationships with staff throughout the school department, and trying to make that all a little bit more cohesive. Uh, we could do a better job communicating with the community just in general, whether that's to parents or just out at large into the community. Um, I know you're familiar, Jeanette, but the you know there's increased competition among schools now, even between New Bedford High School and Voke, even between uh, New Bedford Public Schools and some of the local charter schools. Uh, so we do have to kind of brand ourselves and market ourselves. Uh, public education is not like it used to be, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, and, and prior to that, where you know kid turns four or five and goes off to school, and there's one choice, one game in town. Um, you, we can debate the merits of you know school choice and and of the system that that uh, enables the charter school competition with public schools all day, um, but that's the reality that we live in now. So how do we position New Bedford Public Schools to not only 
you know, win in the competition, but also serve students' needs most effectively, like at New Bedford High School, trying to implement some vocational training options. Mm-hmm. The reality is, uh, is that voca- New Bedford Voc is receiving more students that are sort of on a college track. They're academically inclined rather than necessarily uh, going to learn a trade. Uh, and New Bedford High School, uh, just by by virtue of how the enrollment works, New Bedford High School is catching more of the kids that are probably interested in, in going into the trades rather than uh, going into a, a university education. So we have to pivot and, and adjust and market ourselves um, around those things to best meet the students' needs. We can't you know, get into a, uh, a war of words or a battle with these other schools. We just have to do a better job ourselves. But is it, there's a kind of a limit to how much a comprehensive high school can do um, in vocational education um, Partly because it's so expensive, right, to in- implement those programs. That's what I've been told. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, so vocational schools actually get more dollars per student uh, in state funding or in the state's foundation formula than uh, comprehensive schools do uh, by probably about six or $7,000 per student. Uh, so I think vocational schools are closer to $20,000 per student. We're at about twelve or thirteen. Um but it's difficult because there are some costs involved in starting up a program like that. So we had actually mounted an application with the state uh, for some of that vocational funding uh, to start a culinary program at New Bedford High School. And the state you know, ultimately came back and said, your plan's not really good enough. It's not detailed enough. Part of the reason is we have staff that are you know, pulled in a thousand different directions that worked on that proposal just to kind of test the waters. Uh, and so at our last school committee meeting, we had approved a position. Uh, I think it's called manager of uh, career and vocational uh, technical education, something like that. Uh, and that person is really going to be the point person that pulls together uh, an application for vocational funding, uh, pulls together you know, teams of, of people from the community and from local industry uh, so that they can lead that work. And hopefully, you know, a few years down the road, we'll have uh, two or three certified vocational programs at New Bedford High, New Bedford High School uh, that will make us more competitive in the city and will better fit the students that we have going there. All right. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't touched on? There's so much going on. So much going on. We've got the superintendent search. Uh, we're about to head into the, the budgets. Well, we're actually probably in the middle of the budget cycle, um, too. So we'll be we'll be whittling down the budget over the next few weeks and going into uh, the next fiscal year. Uh, we're renegotiating the uh, transportation contracts that um, bus students around the city and uh, and sometimes out of the city, depending on where they go. Um, that's a, you know, roughly 10 to $12 million uh, price tag. And that's a thing that, you know, is sort of an under, unappreciated uh, part of the budget. Uh, so there's there's a lot going on. We've got the superintendent search. Um, that's really the dominating thing in the next few weeks. Um, and then, you know, above and beyond that, there's there's all kinds of statewide considerations. Uh, Brockton has announced that they're going to try to undertake a lawsuit against the state because uh, urban school districts are, are not adequately funded. Uh, Worcester last week had symboled, uh, some, uh, signaled rather, some support of that and they're considering joining a lawsuit as well. Uh, New Bedford would have arguably more to gain uh, from a successful equity lawsuit than than most other districts in the state. So mm. uh, that's another factor to consider in the in the you know next uh, four or five years here in New Bedford. So is that joining that lawsuit going to be something the the school committee discusses? It's a possibility. Um, I would consider bringing it to the school committee. Part of the frustration of the argument, I guess, would be you know if you can find a way to free up money to support a lawsuit do you really need the money, right? That's the, that's the sort of counter-argument. Um, and I, I would advocate for as much dollars uh, to go into the classroom as possible. If one district is choosing to uh, mount that kind of lawsuit 
it doesn't really matter how many others sign on. So um, I don't know that it would make sense for us to commit money uh, to do that or really, to be honest with you, how it would work or how we could do that. Um, I know there's restrictions against um, cities and school departments from using funds on like political activity. Um, I guess it's a little different when it comes to legal activity, uh, but that's just another consideration. Uh, I'm also on the, the uh, board of the Massachusetts Association of School Committees, and we've had some preliminary discussions. Um, last year, uh, as part of the Mass Association of School Committees uh, delegate assembly, there was a vote undertaken to have the organization withhold some of their reserved funding um, to perhaps support a lawsuit like that. So I think there's going to probably be a variety of, uh, of groups across the state um, kind of mounting together to, to put together something like that. But I think the best and probably most realistic opportunity for a lawsuit comes from, uh, come, from not from a lawsuit, but from fixing that problem, comes from the legislature. So there's a, a bill before uh, the Senate uh, or the Joint Ways and Means Committee up at the State House that would uh, essentially rectify the problem. Uh, the state has to identify revenue to fill in this one to two billion dollar uh, pothole, basically in the foundation formula, um, which might be something that comes through as part of the fair share amendment next year uh, at the ballot uh, at the ballot box. But we shall see. We shall see. New Bedford would probably stand to gain about thirty million dollars from that, and uh, I really think it's probably the most important issue on the horizon for the next decade or so. Hmm. All right, Josh Amaral from the New Bedford School Committee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.